Thank you for downloading this New Zealand Sports Radio show. We have a new way that you can support us. There is a link in the notes down below where you can make a one-off donation to New Zealand Sports Radio. Thank you for support and uh, enjoy the show. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to The Long Talk, the show where we talk with athletes, coaches, administrators and other people involved with the world of sport. We talk about their journey and where they are now. And today I have a different one. We're going to be talking analytics of sport. And joining me is Simon Strachan. Yeah, very good, Paul. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for having me. So Simon, you're with Gainline Analytics, and you guys look at different teams and sports uh, and analyse um, how they work. Uh, yeah, that's right. So um, generally, sports analytics very much focuses on skill and outcome and output of teams and individuals. Uh, we've taken a completely different approach to the way teams work, and we look at um, the inputs, how um, the understanding between players on the field um, influences performance, um, but in doing that, we look at it from a very um, um, sort of overall um, perspective around governance. How does an organisation put um, their team together from an overall long-term structural standpoint, and then how does that influence performance on the pitch? So it's not about what a coach can do on the day. It actually stems back to how does the organisation set up the team in the long term? What do they do? What are their structures underneath? And how does that influence performance? So, um, you know, the All Blacks, yes, they've got a lot of great players, but that's a function of the structure underneath uh, for many years um, in that way. So that's the way we look at sport and that's the way we analyse it. And we can analyse um, teams in different ways from that long-term perspective all the way down to um, individual games. And then by doing that, we can actually look at um, performance in context is a team overperforming, underperforming relative to where they should be? And how does that affect players? Um, sometimes players have bad games. Is it because of them, uh, their individual skill, or is it a function of the way the team is, is working around them? So it's just a different view, another view of how teams function. But what we do, what we think is actually quite powerful view um, and the fact that it's not necessarily looked at um, because very much skill is the, f- the focus on performance is very much um, on skill um, and that skill is, is not necessarily the biggest driver. When we call, talk about skill, it's not just the player's skill, it's also the skill of the, uh, the coach um, from that perspective as, as well that 
um, around tactics. Um, you know, the difference at elite sport is actually very little between the skill of the players and the skill of the coach. It's very, it's very, um, it's not very often that you have an outlier. You know, someone who can change the game in that way. So, um, but from our perspective, um, the ideas around cohesion analytics, as we call it, has a, has a long-term impact, and it is a long-term impact, and that's why it's not very tangible from a game-by-game -game perspective, and that's probably why um, not many other people have picked up on it. So, but it's actually, if you listen to a lot of interviews with Scott Robinson. Uh, he talks about the Crusaders. Um, he, he quotes um, a bit of our work, and and that's sort of a fundamental driver to the way that they've been successful for such a long time. So, so it's in there. It's in the fabric of every teams. So some some teams just don't realise it, and other teams do. So we just put a language. We can put a language to that, and then some teams have embraced it, uh, and other teams go on their merry way and try and buy talent and try and buy success. So let's have a look at why you guys look at things differently and go back and uh, have a look at your sporting background and how you got into sport and how you kind of think about it all. Um, what was your first um, rugby memory? Yeah, my first rugby memory. So I, I um, was actually born in the UK and I actually came to Australia as a young kid. Uh, I actually moved to um, South Australia, which is not a, a rugby hotbed um, in any way. It's an AFL state. But I was very much an Anglophile as a kid, um, and I and I got it and I got it as growing up because I supported the English cricket team and I I wore my Tottenham Hotspur jacket to school and no one had a clue what was going on, um, so I always followed football, soccer, rugby league and rugby union because that's I, I sort of I enjoyed that and that sort of connected me with my English background, um, but really for me. Um, from a, from a football perspective or a soccer perspective, it was always the FA Cup, but then it was the Rugby League Kangaroos Tours of the UK. And then it was um, Grand Slam, the Wallabies Grand Slam Tour, and then the 91 uh, Rugby World Cup was, was the one that sort of captured me. Uh, and that's really sort of captured me as a, as a rugby devotee. And then um, from that, um, I started playing um, rugby. So uh, how old were you um, when you moved over to Australia from uh, from England? Yeah, so I was only young, so I was only um, sort of single digits. So you remember getting up in the middle of the night and uh, watching the games um, with your dad sort of with a miler? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was like, it was a, a bit of a family tradition, especially the FA Cup. Like that was the thing. Um, you know, people like Ozzy Ardiles and Ricky Villier playing for Spurs uh, back in the early 80s. Like they're just so these memories I've got. I've got no idea what they look like, but I just know I have this memory stuck in my mind of, of, of that and this, this romanticism of the sport because you didn't necessarily get a lot on TV back in the day. And it was like rugby as well. Like rugby on TV was such a rarity um, that it, it, was, um, it was just so exciting, especially like the Kangaroo Rugby League Tours uh, to the UK. It was just held up in this, you know, this amazing thing that you used to get up in the middle of the night to watch. And it was like that. Um, for um, the 91 Rugby World Cup as well. So, uh, look, I've been to Melbourne and literally every single preschool uh, playground, never mind uh, actual school, seems to have an AFL set of sticks in it. So uh, so who did you play um, soccer with or where did you find a soccer team to play with? Uh, yeah, it was it, 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 literally, I, to be honest, it was me and my dog playing in the backyard with a stick and a soccer ball. It was hard. It was there was nothing. It was AFL. So it was cricket in the summer, which of course everyone did, and I did. And then it was AFL in the winter, and then there was me <laughs> hanging out with all my mates, which was just me and my dog and a stick. 
So, um, um, yeah, so the opportunity I got, so um, earliest opportunity when I got to gravitate to other people with the other similar interests, um, and it helped for me um, eventually when I moved to the city, then that gave me the opportunity to um, um, get to play sport uh, at a higher level and get to play rugby at a higher level, like not a professional level or anything like that. I was just a very happy um, individual that actually got to play um, um, club rugby um, whenever I could. Like I was never, I was never destined to play professional. I was never big enough. I was never fast enough um, from that perspective. But I was passionate, like every rugby person. You can't be, you can't, if you're going to play rugby, you've got to be passionate because if you're going to get whacked uh, for 80 minutes, you've got to love the game. Yeah, that's when I gave up um, rugby was when uh, everyone else got bigger and I didn't grow quite as quickly and got squashed all the time. So that's why I gave up. Um, looking at your career though, but you started coaching early on at um, Adelaide University. Yeah, so um, so basically when I, early on in my playing career, I, I kind of sort of would stood, stand there on the field and said, I'm sure there's more to this game than what the coaching are telling me. So I actually did a coaching course very early on, um, just so how can, I, how can I help myself with the game? How do I better understand what's going on with the dynamics? Because I was always, I've always been a very analytical person. Um, I was always, I was like that at school. I ended up going into a profession that was like that. Um, and I wanted to, always wanted to know more. So I actually did a coaching course. And what that allowed me to do is as I was playing, I also coached. Uh, as well. So um, that gave me other sort of learnings around the sport, other aspects. So A, it could help me with my own game, but also I could understand what's going on as well. So, and part of that was um, I ended up um, coaching my the, the team that I played for. I ended up coaching, I was injured for a season and I ended up um, coaching the uh, University of Adelaide women's team that turned out that was started by my wife who was an American exchange student at the time. She rocked up to the the club and said, I want to play. And they said, well, we don't have a women's team. So she came back the next day with 14 friends and said, well, you do now. And they said, well, Simon, you're injured at the moment. Can you coach them? And then um, she went back to America and I followed. And um, so that was years ago and two kids later. Um, so, um, so through that, playing and coaching at the same time really gave me insights to the game and allowed me to um, sort of understand the game further. And, and I think one of the benefits, I honestly believe one of the benefits I had is not growing up in a traditional rugby state, that I didn't necessarily have any preconceived ideas around the game. I would break the game down into the fundamental areas of it and then look at what part of the game was important and what wasn't and then able to build the framework from that in my own mind. And so I think to a degree that actually gave me a little bit of advantage over people who, who potentially were involved in, the, in traditional rugby states that just assumed this was the way you did things. This was the way it happened in the game because that's the way it's always been done. And if anything, because I was coming in with ignorant bliss, I actually sometimes took a different approach and would actually look at the game in a different way. Sometimes I got it completely wrong, but other times I didn't. And through that, it allowed me to actually go from a coaching perspective down a, a, a reasonably unique pathway. And I, I actually got, um, when, when I eventually moved to Melbourne, involved in the Rebels junior pathways and, and, and coached um, with some junior representative teams to some reasonable success, um, which was partly um, due to my own 
I suppose, own experience, some very, very good assistant coaches, um, and also just the nature of the way um, Victorian junior teams were put together as well, which comes back to that whole cohesion story um, um, that I'm involved in. Are you jumping ahead of it there? Because uh, you're missing out a period of like a decade where you were um, drawing cars. Yeah, and that's that. Well, that's right. And that work comes back to sort of my the way my brain works. So I was um, so I was always a analytical person. I could also draw. So I ended up being a car designer for ten years. So I worked for Holden. Um, uh, that's that's the reason I actually moved to Melbourne because I got a job as a designer with Holden. So which was a fantastic. At the time when I was there, it was awesome, you know, designing SS Commodores and Monaros and all those sort of things. Um, and it was a great time. Uh, they were a great company we worked for um, as well. But at the end of my time there, I, 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 for some reason, I started to lose the passion. I could also see that there was the car industry was not necessarily going in the direction that I could see it was going to be sustainable. And so I actually wanted to get out and move. Or actually, I put together a plan B, and my plan B was to do a dip head to become have a basically a school teacher qualification as a plan B in case it went all pear shaped. But coincidentally, an opportunity came up in a school in Melbourne to be director of rugby and to be a teacher as well. So I actually took the plunge. I said, um, car industry not too good. Opportunity to be a director of rugby at a school, which means I could shape the program at a school and also be a first 15 coach. And I'd been a first 15 coach at another school in Melbourne before that. Um, and I really enjoyed it because you get the opportunity to work with kids and mold kids. And, um, and, and generally the school, the school rugby is, is a, is a, is a good way to hone your skills. Um, and so I took that plunge, left Holden, took up a role, um, and worked at a school for five years as director of rugby. Damn near killed me. Um, cause I was very, uh, hang on a second. Just before we move on from the uh, from, from the old car stuff, uh, there's a lot of petrol heads who obviously enjoy rugby as well. No, I'm not one of them. But um, tell me, which was your favourite car that uh, you got to uh, design? Uh, well, it have to be involved in the the new Monaro that was released in sort of 2001, 2002. More because of the history that went with that car. The fact that like it was such a fun car to be involved with from the designs design sense because it was literally designed on the lounge room wall of the head of design one day he just he just got some designing tape and taped it up in his lounge room took some photos and they actually built the prototype secretly and presented it at a mo show and people were agog they were just amazed they had to talk north america into allowing them to um turn it into a production car and you would literally take these cars before you could, someone you could buy them. There would be cars on the road after the release and you'd take them for a drive and you'd stop at a service station and fill them up with petrol and people would be literally just coming out of shops and coming out of their houses to look at the car and to be involved in that and to see the passion of people around the brand and this particular car was, you know, it was, it was very uplifting to be involved in that particular brand and that particular car. Um, so, so that was exciting, but then just the nature of the beast of General Motors and Holden, when Holden becomes successful, uh, North America sort of got their tentacles in and became you know, a lot more corporate and it was very harder, it was a lot harder to create those one-offs like we did with Monaro and so it became a little bit more bureaucratic and you know, sort of lost a, I lost a little bit more of my passion around um, that time. But then. Um, and again, I've, a lot of your audiences um, um, in New Zealand, I'm not too sure if they're aware, but Holden is officially 
um, the brand's officially been shut down. Oh yeah, um, yeah fact, we're aware. Yeah, they've stopped. Yeah, yeah. So they've stopped making. They stopped making them in in, uh, in Australia quite a few years ago, and then yeah, yeah now and shut but it down now entirely. the yeah, yeah, and now that yeah, brand shut down. So that I mean, it happened eleven years after I uh, after I felt that it was going to. So eventually, I was right. It just took eleven years <laughs> for it to happen. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah. Well, now we now we've lost all the Ford fans. Um, we can get on to... Um... In saying that, I was a Ford fan before I got the job at Holden, so I've got a soft spot for both. So I was a massive Dick Johnson fan, so if anyone's a touring car fan from way back in the day, because there's a lot of Kiwis, a lot of Kiwis have been very successful in touring cars in oh. Australia, so I was a massive Dick Johnson fan, but um, I'm, I, I, you know, but working for Holden, you can't help but support Holden's after that, so... Oh, absolutely! Yeah, there's no yeah, V8 supercars is massive over here. So, so, so you, you didn't get around to taking your dip head; you just went straight into schools um, as 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 a as a rugby yeah, teacher. Yeah, so I did. So basically, I did my I did a dip head part time while oh, yeah. I was at Holton, okay. and then got the job at um, as a director of rugby at a school, and then plus teaching art and design because of my background as a designer. So I was a first year teacher plus running the rugby program. It was very hard to learn to be a teacher. Um, and run the rugby, run the rugby program because I was I was a little bit more passionate about the rugby than about the teaching side. Even though I do I did enjoy the teaching and the art and the art and design side. Um, um, I got there and literally the first two weeks the parents rugby group said we were promised a tour to New Zealand. We want a tour to New Zealand. It was like okay. It was a great tour. Um, North Island. A couple of years later I went to the South Island. Um, we had a great time. We got absolutely flogged, um, but. This is a great thing about New Zealand schools. They are beautifully and welcoming. Thank you very much for coming to our school. It's great that you've come. You're not going to win, but it's great that you're here. It's beautiful. You know, we welcome your boys. You're not going to win, but you know, it's, but it was it was a really you know great time. It was great for the boys, especially Melbourne boys. That you know they're passionate about their rugby, but but to to be immersed in New Zealand, you know, is a great experience for them. Oh, absolutely, and. Um so also at your time while you were working at school, you were working with under 18s teams uh, at uh, the Victoria level as well. So hence you you were getting known within the union. Um, yep. And then and then the opportunity came up to do some work with uh, with Melbourne Rebels as a, yeah, as a so, analyst, analyst. Yeah. So it was a sort of a long convoluted way. So through the through coaching, it's like um, if you put your hand up for enough crappy jobs, and when I say crappy jobs, that's a bit harsh. So I was putting my hand up to coach a um, Victorian school, seconds, 15, to play a touring English school. Um, and then you do, your, you do your hard yards, you get the assistant coach's job of the Victorian schools to go to the national championships. You, you do pretty well in that way. You put, it, put your hand up enough for the, for the other jobs. And then one day someone says, oh, by the way, the Wallabies are in town. They need someone to hold a camera uh, for training. Okay, that's me. All right, what do I do? We'll go down there, meet them, and then just stand at training and film, and that's your job, just for a day. Yep, no worries, I'll do that. So, um, and that's when I met a fellow named Andrew Sullivan, who was the Wallabies analyst. If anyone knows um, Andrew Sullivan, probably known by the name Digit. So he was, so it was when Robbie Deans was the Wallabies coach, and so Digit was Robbie Deans' analyst, at the Crusaders and when um, Robbie was assistant coach at the All Blacks. And so for this one Wallabies training, it was like, Simon, just hold the camera, film this, film that, no worries. What are you doing tomorrow? Or nothing. Can you come back tomorrow? Yeah, no worries. All right, hold the camera. Okay, 
what are you doing on Saturday night? Um, I was going to come to the test. All right, come to the test, meet me at the ground, I'll give you your ticket, we'll go up in the stand, do this. After the test, come back under the stand, I'll teach you how to download the video. No worries. You beauty, thanks. That was great, Simon. What are you doing this time next year? Um, well, I'll just be around. Okay, so we're back in Melbourne. So when we're back in Melbourne, um, come and visit. And it was literally like that. So, so I did that for a couple of years for the Wallabies. And each time it was like, what's the next stage? Video, coding, download, clip it. What do the coaches want? So it was like learning each step. And at that point, um, um, the sort of two years on, and then Ben Darwin, who had moved to Melbourne because the Rebels. Well, actually, let's, let's 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 take a step back then to, yep. um, to, to to that. Then. So you've got no video background. You've got no coding or 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 or, or sort of uh, training analyst background yeah. before this. No. It's just purely yeah. Because it, Point the camera over the, there, please. This was back in the day because Digit was, he came from an IT background. There was really nobody, this was back in the day when there was no official performance analyst. There was no masters of performance analytics courses at university. The analyst in the club was, he was the forwards coach and the analyst. He was the SNC and the analyst, or he was a guy who could run computers and was the analyst. It was a media guy who could clip VHS tapes and was the analyst. It was not a unique position, so it was not very highly data-driven, unlike now where every university has their own you know, master's degree in sports analytics pumping out you know, 100 graduates a year for three jobs, so to speak. So it was very much a, it was a, it was a develop on the run type of position. So, and, and if you were smart enough, if you could operate and if you understood the language of rugby, and you could work, and you had a, you know good interrelationship skills with coaches, and you could you could work with them. Then it's the sort of role you could fulfil, and that's essentially what happened with me um, in that situation. So you've uh, so so the coaches you've been under, obviously you worked with Robbie Deans there at um, the Wallabies. Uh, yeah. Um, well, you were there for ten years. So uh, so after Deans, um, yes, there was Link, Link, and then after. Uh, link it was checker as well or, yep. or did you leave before he no no with check as well so so it worked um and this is so it was with so with robbie at the wallabies and then after robbie left um um digit stayed on as performance analyst so i would help him so um um so i did the melbourne test and did a few other tests around australia with them and then when check came on at the time when that happened, the, the head performance analyst for the Wallabies used to be one of the Rebels guys. And just because purely through relationship, I know how you work, Strawny, you're a, you, you know what you're doing, we've got a good relationship, can you come and help us? So again, similar thing, Melbourne and, and other places um, to fill the gaps um, um, up until, in fact, up until last year as well. So um, so, so, so what, so I don't know if you can give, if, if you're allowed to give us a little insight as to how um, say Deans versus Link versus Check looked at um, analysts and, and, and analytics. Did, did they have different favourite um, numbers yeah. they want to see? Or no, or? so I couldn't. I can't really tell you from the Wallabies' perspective because from my role it was more sort of logistics, the logistics right. side. Um, but in saying that, there was there's always a lot of information. 
there's there was a there's a, a massive amount of information that is collected and prepared how much they chose to use and look in their own time that was i didn't know from that yeah, perspective I, I imagine there's, there's there's too much especially from a week to week yeah um, level to, to yeah. try and to try and follow it all so um yeah. so w- w- one of the one of the questions i like to ask uh at my turn a couple of other coaches is what's your favorite stat because um, yep. it gives you an idea as to are they is the, is the head coach more defense or attack orientated um what and what yep. what does what, what do they look at so yeah no, okay yeah. it would have been interesting but, but to see. in saying that my experience my experience with the rebels in in sort of going through that period of time um working with a number of different coaches is that i did experience that in that different coaches had different methodologies around analysis um, some of the coaches were go find me something, just go find me a nugget somewhere else. And other coaches were I want this, like this is my vision for the way we want to play. So this is what I want. So it was like some of them. Um, our one head coach was this is it, this is what I want. Another head coach was go find me something, go find something special, or go find me a little gold nugget out there. And potentially that was a reflection of the way they were thinking. You know, yeah. one one coach was potentially um, um, let's explore and find out how we want to what we want to do. Another coach was I really know the way I want to play in that way. So um, yeah, so each coach uses it a different way. And in saying that, um, in my experience is that each coach is very different. Some people, some coaches can't even turn on a computer, where other coaches I've experienced can reprogram computers. So Stephen Stephen Larkham, for example, he is very very um, was very tech savvy, um, and so he he had a great ability to actually dig deep down um, because he's got a because he was tech savvy he could really visualize things in his head um, where other coaches would sometimes um, struggle with a um, chart let alone a whole bunch of information so. Well, that's interesting. So the 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 image you get of, of Czech is that he is a more of a an, an emotional coach rather than a sort of heavy tactics coach. So I can see how those two might not yeah, uh, could could, could but, clash in a coaching environment. But it's, yeah, but that's that's often the external persona. Mm-hmm. What the exter- what happens in the external, what happens in the internal? Because I know the analysis department of of the, the Wallabies during that period, and they were very good. Um, and so so what was used internally and what the perception was externally. Um, often are two different things, right? Okay. That so if you've heard, if you've heard folks that check basically gets good performances by shouting at half time, there's, there's there's a bit more to it than that. Um, the <laughs> put bluntly. Um, so you were there at the Rebels when they when they were founded um, in, the, in, the, in the first year. Uh, how is that when you, you you're going into a an organisation from absolute scratch and you're building it from ground up? Was that something you found exciting, trying to build something from, from nothing? Uh, it was. So um, one of my roles was um, coding. So I think when I got there, they may have just signed Cipriani. I think he was signing number one. And um, it was like, okay, here's, you know, here's our 60 players we're looking at. Go and clip. Go clip these 10 players. And it might be from Shoot Shield in Sydney it might be from Prem Rugby or it might be from NPC. I actually loved clipping NPC because it was so much better to watch um, just for the nature of the way they played. So not, not, 
So, okay, so we're not talking about here about the, the, the quality of the camera work or anything like that. You're, you're talking about the, the style of rugby when you say... Oh, just the style of rugby. Because yeah. it was just better. It was just, it was just more... Because you, you're there, like, literally for hours having to clip games. And it can be very laborious and extremely boring. Um, but it's, So if you're going to be doing that, you'd rather be watching NPC, where props are throwing 30-metre passes, cut-out passes, than Prem Rugby, where it's mud rolling more mud rolling more mud we're actually going is that the player i'm supposed to be clipping the one covered in mud is that the player i'm not 100 percent sure so um so it, it was exciting in the fact that you would you would clip so we would we would clip and we would write a bit of a report xyz you know this is what we thought about the particular player and just write some um a little bit about their particular skill set um whether or not um, a minion like me that had actually any input into into in, into their selection choice. Um, ultimately, I think for that first squad, it came down to availability. But um, but it was exciting to see it all come together just from that perspective. But but in hindsight, from where I am now and the position I am and the way we look at the governance of teams and how teams are brought together and knowing what the drivers are for teams like you know the Crusaders of the world and the Leinsters um, and um, you know, the Melbourne Storms and other teams like that and understanding how the Rebels put their team together, it was always going to be a disaster um, by the nature of the way they put it together. So you've got, I think, 11 former provincial captains in one team, um, so many internationals, so much experience, um, but it was um, an out-and-out disaster and a, a, a continuation of that but nobody knew. So I can say that. I mean, I can say that because that's that's the way we look at it as game line analytics. Yeah. Um, but but no one no one knew that that's the way it was going to turn out because no one actually had thought about how you put teams together and the influence of the way that that was going to be going to be put together because it was everyone really focusing on skill um, from that perspective and what the influence of all that external experience was going to bring. Yep. So, but you've got that. Um, so that's that, that's 2010, and I'm trying to. So, if Warren Gatland was at Wales, what was he? he was there for 12 years, wasn't he? So he would have been there. I'm trying to think when he would have started. So he would have started around about 2008, I think. Now, when he picked his very first Welsh squad, he picked uh, his very first squad. He picked um, 14 players from one region, from one team, and one player yep. from another. So clearly, there was an idea of the combinations matter at the when you're picking an international team so yeah surely the, so, so surely there was the, the the concept that combinations matter was was around back in the even 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 back then um you you say that and you think well surely but 90 <laughs> percent of professional in a way 90 percent like this is a very generalized mm. bold statement 90 percent of professional sports teams do not think that way. Majority of them are focused on skill acquisition. What is this player doing and how does he do it? Without the concept of how does that player, individual player, impact the players around them? How did that player do that at that other club? Is that transferable? And if it is transferable, or when that player does come to this club, when they are put under pressure, will they fall back to the defensive system that they knew at that other club? And run the wrong run the wrong line, and the guy outside him will then not know what to do, and create a massive gap in that way. That's why low cohesion teams let in lots and lots of points. 
They may score lots, but defensively they're really poor. Danny Cipriani in that first year for the Rebels would do some amazing things, but then the Rebels would let in lots of points. And I apologise to the Rebels for harking back to that, but then obviously that's something that I know know a lot. But it's like the Sunwolves now. The Sunwolves in Super Rugby let in a lot of points, but they look, they are from the outside that they look okay because they score lots of points. Yep. But there's a function here is that most teams put their B team against them. Oh, we're playing the Sun Wolves this way. We, we can actually rotate. And what that does is actually opened up all these wonderful gaps and opportunities for the Sun Wolves to score extra points. If every team put their A team against the Sun Wolves, it would be like the Reds did um, earlier in the season, 60-odd 60 60 to 5 or whatever it was. Um, so, and, and we've got the data to show because we, we track when it, when teams change, we understand how the change occurs. Mm-hmm. And when teams put their normal team up against the Sunwolves, the scores are a lot to not much when teams make changes. And yes, you can see the changes, but we look at changes in a different way because you can make a change and the team can get better. You can make a change and the team get a lot worse. Um, generally, we'll rest these players like the Chiefs, um, I think uh, I, I'm saying the Chiefs. I think the Chiefs, when they led up to the Sunwolves, actually had a couple of resting weeks, yep. um, and then they um, it creates opportunities, creates gaps, creates defensive gaps, and then the the Sunwolves look actually better than they are in that way. I've digressed a little bit. That's that's no, that's absolutely fine. Um, have you come across the Ace? Um, yeah. On online that. Um, oh, yeah, um, 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 Nevin, Nevin, um, um, him, um, rugby, um, it's yeah. Will, it's, it's Will Downing Williamson. I know his name, but I can't, I've forgotten what his, uh, yeah. it's rugby numbers or something like that is his, is his Twitter handle. Yeah, Ace, Ace, Ace. um, yeah, absolutely. Yep. So, do you, so you, so you think that, so, so what he does for those that, that don't know is that he gets the squads from each, for each sub rugby game, um, and then he compares the players and says, this player, um, puts that is uh, puts uh, looking at the stats. This player is worth um, X number of points, and he then compares yeah. all the players. And then he adds a, a, a factor, a home factor, and a team factor as as well to the end. Um, yeah. So, do you do you what, what do you think of his system? Is is is, is that a is is he, is he along the right the right tracks? Do you think? Well, or? the only the the question I ask for every predictive system is. Um, uh, what's its purpose? Is its purpose to predict games? If that's its purpose, then thumbs up. That's that's its job. It's like ELO ELO rankings. Um, if anyone that doesn't know what an ELO ranking is, it is a method of predicting outcomes <laughs> based on. It's based on, um, in the simplest terms, previous performance influences future performance. If you're doing really well, your ranking goes up. If you're doing poorly, your ranking goes down. If a good team loses against a bad team, that's even worse. So it's a way of ranking performance based on previous performance, um, future performance based on previous performance, which is all very well. If your job is to predict outcome, then there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But my question is then, how does the team use it? If you went to a coach and said, you're going okay, oh, and the coach says, why? Well, you've won the last five games. And then the coach says, well, how does that help me and win the next five? And your prediction says, well, I don't know. All I know is you're going okay. Then then what purpose, what extra purpose does it have? 
in that way. And I can't, and I, and that's the thing. I don't know enough about ACE whether or not it offers that, whether or not you could go to a team and say, here's some factors that we see about your team that will improve performance with it. So, well, his, but, uh, his, uh, to, to be fair to Will, it, it, it's it's yeah. uh, it's something that he does um, as a hobby, and it's yeah. done. It's done. It's done for more for entertainment. Yeah, and that's um, and that's what the, yeah, and that's so. partly what um, our our because our virtual Super Rugby, what we're running at the moment, that's partly entertainment for us as well. Because when Super Rugby finished, we were kind of twiddling our thumbs yep. in Super Rugby pause. So that's why we're running virtual Super Rugby, and because we our prediction is we use a much different way. We don't use previous performance. We use team lists. And so we're, we're basically selecting our own team list using randomised injury and what we think based on how the teams previously selected. Like the Jaguars, when they travel overseas, they virtually pick a different, not a different 15, but they you know, make six, seven, eight, nine changes to their team where, say, the Crusaders are very stable in that way so we so we model out our the team list so it's very different to the way they do it but what we do the way we look at it is um our prediction we don't do prediction for prediction's sake our prediction is to test our modeling to say which team would have won um why would have they won what are the drivers that will allow the team to understand what's creating performance and what's not where are your weaknesses where are your strength how can you fix it in that way and prediction is just one of the outcomes um, but uh, as you say, that. what since since, since uh, Super Rugby has been suspended, you've been doing a bit of entertainment stuff. So, um, your your virtual Super Rugby, I, I must, I've not I've, I've not checked out, but um, who is who is topping the table? Is it the Crusaders by any chance? It is the Crusaders, uh, and then the Sharks. But in exciting news to Queensland Reds fans, they've just topped after last round. They are topping the Australian um, Conference. Okay. Uh, yep, but they've got a buy this week. So uh, they're just one point ahead of the Brumbies. So I think the Brumbies only need to get a bonus point. I think they might be ahead on um, for and against. Uh, that may not be true, actually. So if the Brumbies get a win, they're back up um, to the top of... Um, but it's pretty tight. Um, so we were... Um, so last year with our normal, our normal prediction, um, just with our normal modelling, our, our modelled Super Rugby table was on an average... I think 1.6 positions out, so um, overall compared to everyone else. So, so it's reasonably good. And but, but what we use it for is to say to a club, um, say to a team when we oh, work with sure, teams. Sure, sure. But, but at the moment, people, yep. so the moment people can follow this on, um, yep. on your on your Facebook, on your, web, on your website and, and Twitter account. Yep. Yep. And so, so the things you've been taking into account. So you you already mentioned that you've you you've, you you model how the teams go about selection. So for example. Yep. Warren Gatland at the beginning of this season with the Chiefs was doing quite a lot of rotation so that his yes. players were fresh towards the end of the season. So again, yep. you'll, you'll have continued that style of selection. So you're, you're taking style of selection into account. Yep. You're, you're randomising injuries in there as well. Yep. Um, now, is the randomising injuries, is it, is it the same per team? Or do you say, okay, look, the Chiefs historically can never keep, two, can never keep more than three, um, three props fit. Therefore, they, they have a heavier... Or did it? Or is it total? Or is it the same for all the teams from an injury? Yeah, point it's view? the same for all the teams. Like that was because we because we wanted just to keep it going. You can end up creating an infinite level of intricacy into the model. Oh yes, and we didn't want to do that. So okay, so um, so, so so it's even so it's even yeah. even injuries across the board. 
but randomised. So some yeah. some things will, will yeah. be impacted more than others. Yeah, um, and in part of that, for example, so Angus um, Tauval came back last week from injury. So he got an ang- I think it was an angle, no hamstring, thigh, quad. Can't remember. So he was injured for about six weeks early on in the season. So we like we monitor we monitored that. So all the injuries that happened in up to round seven, we noted down and had a rough estimate. So out like Alan Alatoa for the Brumbies, he broke his arm in I think round six. So he had about six weeks. So he's coming back for the Brumbies this week. Right. Um, so they're coming back in. So we so the actual injuries. So we've monitored that over the course of the season, and then we just throw in our we've got a little random um, injury generator, and that's based on that is based on on a historical injury rate that we know in Super Rugby, but it's not to the level of club by club because that's that's just bordering on um, just too much work. <laughs> and that's why at the end of the season, we're going to throw a caveat, you know, we're going to throw a little bit of a thing out there just basically saying the criteria behind it. So come if there is a, any form of um, trans-Tasman or Super Rugby, so people don't use what we've done as... You know, you beauty. I'm going to use this for betting or anything like that because oh, yeah. because it is our selection and our selection. We're doing our best, but obviously we can't see into the minds of of what all the provinces think. Oh yeah, and it is. We we, we, we suggest upfront. This is for entertainment. It's not for it's yeah. not it's not for tipping. But so so yeah, yep. so so we've got the yeah, selection as the, the the team by team how they how they've been selecting generally. Uh, yep. Random injuries plus obviously the ones we know about yep. already. So, so if someone's out for the season, they were out for the season. Um, you obviously, you take home and away into account. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. So we've got margins. You know, a team, tra- uh, an Australian team travelling to South Africa has a different sort of home and away margin from a New Zealand team travelling to Australia and um, and all that. So we've we've got that modelled because when we when we do our work with clients, when we do our work with with teams in Super Rugby, because we give them predict predictions for game outcomes so they've got context to their performance so they so so then they know if from our perspective whether there's an expectation to win or lose the game so they don't underreact or overreact to a performance and so within that we've modeled actually that home and away because yeah traveling in south africa is different to traveling new zealand traveling to south america is different to traveling to japan which is what which is why super rugby is a is unbelievable when it comes to the conference and the draw and and how much influence that actually has on the result. Like no team's ever won the final, a final traveling back from South Africa. So that's why the finals are so important. If you, you can win in a final in South Africa, but you've got no chance of um, winning the next and second final if you're traveling back from, back from the Republic. It's just too hard. So it's important to make sure that your semi-final is a home semi-final at the very oh, least. Yeah, um, absolutely. The, absolutely. Um, so you've taken that into account. Um, do you take into account if, if last week's been a rest week or not? So um, how fatigue is impacting no. teams? No. So no, because again, that comes back for the current model. Sorry, for the current model we're doing now, that comes down to the um, how, you know how much how much emphasis we wanted to put in and how sure. much how intricate we wanted to make it. But, that, but that's absolutely valid in what you're saying. That's right. Okay. So those, so look, so it, it's it's a, it's a, it's a fairly complex um, one, and it's um, it's more it's not just yeah. taking. Uh, the Crusaders have beaten the Haguaris every single time, and the average points margin is twenty. Therefore, that's going to be our result. It's, yeah, it's kind of what I'm pointing yeah. out here. Is that yeah, yeah, it's a pretty complex piece yeah. to put and, in there. And the important thing to I think the important thing, and this is the crux of what we do, the game result is a, is almost it's a the, what's driven that game result is the decisions that 
organization made um, three, four, five, six, seven years ago when they started their recruiting process. And that's, that's the real critical part that people don't necessarily understand. The reason the Crusaders are successful, it's not because they've got a great coach and they've got great players, is that the decisions that have been made through that organization's history over time has created that environment um, to enable those players to be together for that long period of time that they've come together, developed a level of understanding and normative behaviors that they can bring players in and they quickly adapt and understand what's going on um, and they become the players they are. And it's this, it happened back here and now you're getting results back there in that way. And, and that, that's the difference between the way we look at performance and generally most other people look at performance. So I had an interview last week, when by the time this comes out, I think, um, with uh, with Tony Lewis, um, who is the CEO of Tasman um, yep. um, Rugby. Now, Tasman and Canterbury are the two provincial unions that feed up into um, the Crusaders, yep. um, and they both have uh, an, a Crusaders Academy in them. Yep. If you look at the Crusaders recruitment for 2020, uh, only one of their new players came from a province that, outside of those two provinces. Correct. If you look at something like the Highlanders, um, you'll see that actually whilst um, Otago and Southland are under the Highlander, are under Highlanders, you'll see that probably um, three quarters or so of their new recruits would have come from places like Auckland, uh, Taranaki, Wellington, etc. So they've not been together as much. And this is part of the stuff you're talking about in this, yes. that it takes five to seven years to, to build yep. a... So, the, the flip side of that, though, is people talk about how South Africa turned around from losing by 50 points to New Zealand, and a year and a half later, they go and win the Rugby World Cup. Yeah. So was that 50-odd 50, 50 points loss a, an anomaly, or can things be turned around that quickly? Yeah, so the, the real critical thing with, with that Springbok side under Rassi Erasmus was that coming into the Rugby World Cup, the, all the squads of those top tier nations, South Africa had the highest percentage of players who played in the last 18 months who were ended up playing together at the Rugby World Cup. So basically what Rassi did with that Springboks team, he basically what we call back-ended. He had a set of players 18 months ago that had, had spent a reasonable, a, a small amount of time together. And it's, it's always... When you look at one game, you know, one game does not make a trend, obviously, but losing my 50 points, um, you know, makes that game stand out. But they were an underperforming team, or sorry, they were a team that weren't performing too well. And then he basically kept a very stable environment up to the Rugby World Cup. And come Rugby World Cup, the Springboks had the most amount of players in that squad that had played together over that period of time. I think from the top tier, tier nations, I think the Wallabies had the least amount of players that played 18 months ago um, to, through that period of time up until the Rugby World Cup. As in, so they had a whole bunch of players over that period of time that never ended up playing playing with the Wallabies, where the Springboks had all those guys ended up over that course of time, majority of them end up playing um, at the Rugby World Cup. So, so they had a lot of time together. So it's saying something like, so the, the squad size is 30, 32 players, so you're saying that over that previous year and a half, Razzie used something around, say, 40-odd, whereas the Wallabies used something like 60-odd players, players in that yeah. same time period. Hence, yeah. whether it's those um, numbers or not, but that's That's, that's the, 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 the gist, yeah. And so I think it was basically, and again, I can't speak for Razzie, 
but it was like, oh my God, I've got 18 months. These are my players. This is what I've got. This is what I'm going to work with. And I've basically, these are my players. I've got 18 months. I'm going to stick with these guys, and this is what this is what's going to happen between now and then. Whether or not that was his thought process, that's what happened. The real positive thing about the Springboks come Rugby World Cup is that because um, when we look at a team, we look at the overall cohesion of the team. We also the weak, we also look at the individual relationships on a team, and often it's the weakest link that doesn't. It's not. It's not the strength of the whole team. It's the weakest link is the decider. You're only as strong as your weakest link, so to speak. And that was the downfall of the All Blacks over the last 18, 12, 18 months in their selection process. But the great thing about the Springboks, they were so consistent up, across all their links, is that they actually didn't have any weak links across their team. And so, because of that, it enabled them that they, they defensively they were quite strong and they could put pressure on um, um, over the course of the tournament, which they did in the final not letting England score early, which was England's strength. When England score early, they put the pressure on, but when when the Springboks stopped that, like literally the final was decided in the first 15 minutes. And then it was, and then it was keep the pressure on. And like statistically with England, when they don't, not allowed to score, they normally let a couple of tries go later in the game because they're up against it. The pressure comes on and they fold a little bit. So when you're talking about the, the All Blacks having a... Uh, a weak link are we talking and uh, uh, we don't really want to finger point but are we talking about selections such as Scott Barrett at six um, and perhaps the inexperience of the back three is, is, is those are those the kind of uh, yeah so inexperience is um, potentially inexperience is not the, the right word for it so um, um, it, but they're two really good examples that um, as a very generalised statement so the over recent history, the difference between, say, the Wallabies and the All Blacks would be if the Wallabies, if a fullback went down, the Wallabies would select the next best athlete to yeah. fill the spot. If the if a, if a All Blacks fullback went down, the All Blacks would select the next best fullback to fill the position because there's so many of them. And the nature of the way the New Zealand system works, it is a structure through NPC, through Super Rugby, and it points to the black jersey, and it's just the, it's this natural system that creates these powerful all-black teams, and that's one of the reasons why the all-blacks are successful. It's not because New Zealand players are so much better than everyone else, or this mana mana that goes around with the all-blacks. It's this, this wonderful system that creates these strong teams. But what happened from our perspective, and what our data tells us, is that the all-blacks started selecting people out of position. And that created these weak links. So they weren't as effective in attack and they weren't as effective in defence. And so um, it basically opened up these opportunities for the opposition. And so often these teams we just sometimes describe as flat track bullies, where when the pressure is not on, they can score lots of points. But when the pressure comes back at them, they can um, collapse. Um, and that's potentially the, the quarterfinal to the semifinal. And they were very extreme um, examples of that, I think, because um, I honestly expected, uh, come semi-final time against England, that the All Blacks forwards, you know, you, you basically just get over the advantage line, get the shoulders through, get that little pop pass, allow the back line to do their thing, but England just didn't allow them to do, and then the pressure came on um, the other way. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Um, so you work with uh, sports um, uh, teams uh, and also leagues. Um, as, as well explaining to them or trying to help them 
on how they should structure and put their their recruitment together to be successful uh, yep. in uh, on on the pitch. Um, do you work uh, and, and you also and you also work with businesses to do to do a similar thing? Yeah. So because um, what we do because we work in the basically fundamental drivers behind teams because we don't use performance data or we don't we don't have an emphasis on skill effectively the way we analyze a team it could be a rugby team a rugby league team a cricket team a football team but it's the same as whether it's a corporate team whether it's a team in financial services whether it's a any type of team that we can measure it in the same way and we compare that against the particular kpis the great thing about sport is it has very um simple kpis points for, points against, line breaks, tackles, all those sort of things. Corporate's a bit different. KPIs can be different. I mean, one of the KPIs is share price. That's a KPI for a corporate entity. Um, but it allows us to actually, we can still measure um, and, and offer um, input around corporate entities, how they set up their groups in the same way as we do sports teams, around governance, around long-term, our long-term recruitment, uh, retention, exiting individuals actually help their um, internal cohesion is the word we use at the level of understanding and how that influences decision making from a long and short term perspective um, in that way. So it has applications in sport. Sport's great. It's in an enclosed environment. Um, the dynamic is is relatively simple. It's actually, I mean, it's quite complicated, but it's much, it's a bit simpler than corporate uh, in that way. Um, um, but it, it's just as applicable in sport and is in corporate as well. So I, mean, I guess the for the most famous example of this is so so basically um, a sports team could come to you and you could do a kind of moneyball style hire and fire suggestion to them if if they um, if, if 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 they wanted to. Uh, yes and no. Like moneyball, like moneyball was very much a thing of its time. It okay. was it was it, yeah. So moneyball because um, that the problem with moneyball is moneyball has a connotation about skill. Because what ultimately right. what Moneyball was was let's look at this individual. What what skill does this individual bring to the team? Where we look at if someone comes to the team, how does that in, influence the collective, the collective output of the team in that way? So so it is an analysis of a of a collective and how does the individual influence that collective and how is that individual going to influence how the rest of the group perform? So it is a an analysis of some form. We we just don't like the term moneyball because it has that influ- that that pure data influence yep. around it and 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 it's in some cases moneyball has got a bad name because some teams some sports have gone down the pure moneyball um, route and have gone absolutely disastrous so we we tend to call it soft analytics as in it's got it's very much got a, a it enables a much more robust decision making framework because a team can go understand what you're saying we're still going to go this way but we know we're going to wear the consequences of it in that way I, I, yeah i guess the way i see it was it's, it's an analytical rather than a it's not an objective way of selecting a team rather than yeah. a, rather than a subjective yep. way of, of, of there, there is yeah. there is a great quote in the movie moneyball which i have to say which is still one of my favorite books actually michael lewis's moneyball with billy bean saying to his chief scout when he's talking about how he chooses players and he basically says to him you don't know you actually just don't know it's it's he's basically telling him it's just a guess it's a gut feel guess because he doesn't really know how he actually chooses talent yeah. and of course what what billy bean was trying to do is actually you know put a metric to it and and that's because the for for sports like 
um, your baseballs and your uh, baseball cricket. It's much more of a one-on-one, one-on-one competition within a team, whereas your footballs, your AFLs, your rugby, your leagues are much more the dynamic of what the rest of the players are doing. It's much more team on team rather than a, a yeah. So it's a different. There's, there's definitely a difference. A reason why it sort of a skill measure might work in that situation because it is one on one rather yeah. than. Yeah. Well, obviously, there, is, there are other factors in there, but it's more one on one than the other than the other types of sports. Yeah, and that's true. And say the rugby codes, rugby union, rugby league, because because we describe it as a 180 degree invasive sport. So you've got a line attacking a line, and so cohesion, um, cohesion is the way we describe it. Is um, it manifests itself quite strongly in the rugby codes because of the, especially defensively, because it, ultimately it's not about the individual's ability to make a tackle. It's the it's the space between the people in the defensive line, their ability to work that way. So. So in the 180-degree sports, cohesion is quite strong. In the 360 sports, 360 invasion sports, like AFL, basketball, netball, hockey, um, football, um, it, it's there, but it, it manifests itself in a different way. But then in football, in soccer, you've got – it's a 360 sport, but then you've got the back four working in a 180-degree in a, in a line. So it's got this other dynamic in there as well. But then we've actually done some work in T20 cricket, as well to understand the influence of cohesion, how how national teams and how clubs select their T20 team, um, and how the influence on there. And there is there is um, signals from a cohesion standpoint on ability of teams to bat first and bat second, and and how they um, work under pressure, batting first and batting second. And uh, and there is a lot of evidence around um, from a cohesion standpoint that the more highly cohesive teams, whether that's the um, Perth Scorchers in the T20 or um, in teams in the IPL because of their selection criteria have been more successful um, in that way as well. So not necessarily in test cricket because that's long and drawn out, but in T20 where every ball, and when I say long and drawn out, not in a bad way, of course, because test, test cricket's fantastic, but in every ball in T cricket, T20 cricket is important and every ball has a piece of stress involved with it. And so there is a bit of influence in that as well. And it's about the collective working together, about knowing the bowler, knowing that he's got confidence to bowl in a certain spot because he's got confidence in the guys around him and, and guys batting together. Yep. I, yeah, it's not, yeah, he's right. It's not a pure one-on-one sport. But, the, um, yeah. uh, but even at Test Cricket, it's about building pressure. And so hence, yeah. when you've got Warren and McGrath bowling, building yeah. pressure at both ends, um, it's yep. much more effective than just one end yeah. creating pressure and the other end letting yeah, off yeah. that pressure as well. So yeah, it, 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 is, it is there. Um, wow, I'm, we're running out of time. Is there anything that I've that I've that I've missed that you'd like to let us sort of know about um, on game line analytics? Yeah, no. Well, um, so it's a really interesting time for professional sport at the moment. So we um, obviously we 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 we've, we've been working in so we've been working in um, competitions like Super Rugby. We've worked in the in the in Prem Rugby and in Pro Fourteen. Um, but obviously everything slowed down for us. So we, what we've actually done recently, we've opened up a, a webinar series on our uh, Cohesion Analytics webinar series. So because we actually want to open up what we're doing to um, um, basically the, the 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 rest of the world, other than just the elite teams. So um, to give people an insight into and some of the things that we've talked about here, how governance affects long-term performance and and how structure and those sort of things that we can understand from a you know building a club all the way down to some aspects of game-by-game perspective. So 
um, we've got a webinar series running, which is a function of, you know, the current climate uh, that we're in, um, the fact that we can't be face-to-face much, but it's also out about getting out, getting our message out. So um, if anyone wants to look into that, um, they can go to our website, www.gameline.biz. Um, and other than that, follow follow all the things we talk about on our um, Twitter page, GLA at GL Analytics. Uh, we've always got something to say uh, about what's going on. So uh, I'm actually really interested with the current conversation around uh, what's happening in New Zealand rugby or questions around NPC um, and um, the, the, the future of NPC and super rugby and potentially what's going to happen because like we talk about how the structure influences teams' performance and the fact that the All Blacks is a function of, of the structure of New Zealand rugby, if that gets tinkered with, um, it might be interesting to see what's going to happen with the All Blacks over the years. So as an Australian, um, I'll be interested to see which way it goes. And the answer, I'm afraid, is it's not going to be if, it's when. Um, and you might, and as we've been saying here, you might, you're not going to feel the effects of it for five to seven years, potentially. And so. that's... And that's yeah. exactly right. So, the, so people that make the decision will probably not be in their in their in their spot when when things potentially go south, and then the finger of blame will turn somewhere else. And we've just seen what's happened with that in um, Australian rugby. So I was going to say, yeah, that sounds very much like what's happened in the, the yes, yeah. in Australia. Yeah. Um, thank you very much for your time. It has been an absolute pleasure um, talking with you. Um, thank you everyone for watching. Don't forget to like the Facebook page. Um, or subscribe on the podcast if you are listening rather than watching uh, New Zealand Sports um, Radio. And um, we'll be back here at 2pm every weekday with another long talk. So uh, don't forget to uh, listen in. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.